So, where do you turn for truth? What is your source for truth? There are several different places you can go with opinions on truth today. But I think the majority of people in this world go to, them, go to themselves. They are their own authority on truth. And really what that means is their own opinion is the truth. And I have to say, when it comes to eternity, when it comes to reality, it's kind of a scary thing. It's a, that's a scary idea that my opinion would be the ultimate authority on truth. When we were going through foster care training, we learned that kids need authority. Because if, if the child, if, if a two-year-old recognizes that they're the authority in the room, then that's a scary place. Because they realize that they are weak. They realize that they are small and the world is big. But if they have the authority, then that's a scary place for a kid. I think the same can be true for us. We like to pretend like we're bigger. We like to pretend like we're stronger. And we are to a kid. But in the grand scheme of this big world, in the grand scheme of eternity, if we're the authority, then that's a scary place. Because our opinions change all the time. And our opinions are often based on our own emotions our own feelings. So where do you turn for authoritative truth? That's what we're going to be studying today as we turn to 2 Peter. So let's get into it. 2 Peter 1, we're going to go all the way from 12 to 21 today as we look at standing in grace. We looked at these last few weeks, we, we, we looked at some theology that was true. And based on this true theology, we could live our lives. So he, now he's going to switch a little bit. So therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we re he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. All right, let's dig in. For we did not follow, oh, sorry. Therefore, 
all the way, I skipped over to verse 16. I meant to start off in verse 12. Verse 12, therefore. So, anytime we get to a therefore, we need to ask the question, what's the therefore? Therefore, I know it's like this cheesy kind of thing, but, but it really helps us remember. Anytime you come to therefore, what's the therefore, therefore? Therefore, and what he's saying is because of all of these truths that we've been walking through, because of God's grace, because of his very great and precious promises, because he has lavished his grace upon our lives, he has made us righteous, he has made us holy and blameless in him, and because he has given us a roadmap to grow in that grace, because there is grace and because we can grow in that grace, therefore, because of these things, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Because these qualities, I will always remind you of these qualities. Because God has lavished his grace upon you, because you can grow in that grace, I will always remind you of this. It kind of is like growing up with kids, or having kids, I should say. Because if I don't constantly remind you to clean up, we will be living in chaos. And no one wants to live in chaos. So I will always tell you to clean your toys. Every day. I'm going to tell you to clean your toys, and when I see those toys out again, I'll tell you again, clean up your toys. Clean up your toys. I don't want to step on Legos in the middle of the night, so I'm going to tell you, clean your toys. All right, so that's what he's saying. I'm going to remind you. These are great promises. We need to hold on to them, so I'm always going to remind you of these great promises and that we can grow in his grace. So I, will, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, Though you know them, and we've been making a big stink about this word know, uh, this one right here is not epigonosco, it's not gnosko, it's a different word for know, it's oidas. And oidas just means to comprehend some knowledge. So they, they comprehend God's grace, they comprehend that they can grow in God's grace, but they may not be actually living out God's grace. So you know them, just like your kids know to clean up after themselves. My wife, we have three boys. My wife has a picture over the toilet that has someone, wa or someone flushing the toilet, someone putting the lid down on the toilet, and then someone washing their hands. My kids know exactly what they're supposed to do, and yet they have to be reminded every single time. They comprehend the knowledge. But they're not living the knowledge out. So they need to be reminded until they finally live out that knowledge. That's what he's doing here, right? I'm going to remind you of this. You comprehend God's grace. I'm going to remind you until you live it out. So although you know them and are established in the truth that you have, you have this truth and you are being strengthened in this truth of God's grace and how you can mature in his grace. He goes on to say, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. So as long as I'm alive, I'm going to preach these truths to you, is what he's saying there. These truths are so important that I'm always going to preach them to you as long as I live. That's what he's saying. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. 
I'm going to preach these to you because I, as long as I live, because I know I'm going to die soon. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. So we don't know when exactly Jesus made this clear. We don't know exactly how Jesus made this clear. But we do know that at some point, Jesus, and there's a lot of different speculation on when it happened and how it happened, but we do know that Jesus at some point made it clear to Peter when and how he was to die. Peter knows this time is coming. And so he writes this letter as his final word against heresies. And we've talked about it before, but his first letter was there's, a, there's persecution, and in the midst of the persecution, Christians stopped growing in grace. And so he writes his first letter to encourage, to spur people on, to continue to grow in grace. But in the midst of the chaos and in the persecution, false teachers started to arise. And they started to deny certain things. They started to bring about certain heresies, which we'll get into later. And so he writes the second as a final word against heresies, a final word against false teachers. They're very important because he writes them right before he dies. He says, this is the last thing you need to know. I've encouraged you to grow in grace. Now I'm going to encourage you to stand firm in that grace, even as false teachers come, and even as false teachers try to take you off track. I want to encourage you before I die. I will die soon. But before I do, I want to remind you of this. And I will make every effort... So he's going to die soon, verse 15, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. So Peter intended for this letter to be read repeatedly. He's going to make every effort. He knows that he's going to die soon, so until he dies, he's going to remind them of these truths, that God has lavished his grace upon them, that they can grow in his grace and he's going to continue to do that until the day he dies. But even after he dies, he expects them to continue to read this letter to remind themselves of God's grace in their lives. And he wants to do it because there are enemies out there that want to convince you that what is true is not actually true. There, there is an enemy that wants to sow chaos within the church, wants to sow chaos within our lives, and wants us to believe a lie. This is, uh, the attack on truth is not new to this era. Sometimes we look at the attack on truth, and we say, this is a new thing. Or we think it's a new thing. The attack on truth that we see today has been occurring since the fall of man. That's the first thing Satan did with Adam and Eve. He said, did God really say? And what was he doing in that one sentence? He was attacking the truth. Did God really say? 
Your idea of the truth, that God spoke truth to you, is false. That's what's going on right there. It happened then, and it's happened ever since then. There is an attack on truth. Peter recognizes it. And that is why he's so intent on reminding them of the truth. And that's why we gather around every Sunday. That's why it's so important to gather with fellow believers and encourage each other in the truth. Because we easily forget the truth. Because there are a lot of different theologies, a lot of different ideologies, a lot of different philosophies that are attacking truth and trying to convince you of a different reality. Trying to convince you that what you believe is not the truth. And if we're not careful, we will believe it. And we'll start to believe a lie. And when we start to believe a lie, we'll start to change our theology. And as our theology changes, our behavior will start to change. And even if we're still secure in our position, we will no longer grow in God's grace. We'll be in God's grace. He will have lavished His grace upon us. He will still, we will still be saying righteous in His eyes, and yet our growth will stagnate. And not only will it stagnate, but when we believe a lie, we will begin to operate out of the flesh. And if we look around, it doesn't take long for us to look around and see the lies that our culture, that humanity would want us to to believe. There are lies everywhere. It would only take a little conversation on your way home to uncover some of the lies our culture would want us to believe. So I want to encourage you to do that. On your way home, in the car, ask, what are some lies that our culture wants us to believe? So he's going to make every effort known. He's going to pursue these people. And he's going to continually to remind them of the truth because he knows that a lie can creep in so easily. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, after I die, you may be able at any time to recall these things. We have to work hard to remind ourselves of the truth of God's grace. He continues in verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying, for, I remind you because I know the truth is essentially what he's saying. Look, I've told you about the truth, that God has lavished his grace upon you, that you can grow in God's grace, and I'm going to constantly remind you of this truth, and I'm going to remind you because I know the truth. Now, the false teachers were trying to slip in a lie. They were trying to, to say... Peter and the apostles don't have it right. We have it right. 
We can still see this in some churches today. That the Word of God, that Scripture doesn't have it right. That Scripture needs to get with the times. There's still an attack happening to this day. And what he's doing here is saying, no, those false teachers have it wrong. I have it right. We did not follow cleverly devised myths. These myths were an attack on Jesus. And later on we're going to find out that these myths were, they were accusing the apostles of making up a myth that Jesus was going to come again. Not only was he not, the false teachers were saying, not only is he not going to come again, but he will never actually judge. Jesus will not come again. He's dead. He's going to remain dead. You'll never see Jesus again. And he'll never judge the wicked. That's what they claimed was a myth. But it was an attack on Jesus himself. Since the beginning of Christianity, Jesus has been attacked because Jesus is central to Christianity. So from the beginning, Jesus has been attacked. From the beginning, people said that he was a liar. From the beginning, they claimed him to be a lunatic. C.S. Lewis developed uh, uh, an apologetic called the trilemma. The trilemma is that Jesus was either a lunatic, a liar, or the Lord. And then philosophers came along later and, and added one more onto that, and that is legend. And that's what we're kind of getting at here, this myth that Jesus was a legend. And so the, the idea goes like this, that a lot of people say that Jesus is a good guy. But he wasn't God. That a lot of people would go ahead and say that Jesus had a lot of great teachings. But he wasn't God. In fact, Gandhi is famous for saying, I love Jesus. What C.S. Lewis was getting at with liar, lunatic, or Lord, and what later philosophers came along with legend, is that you can't have it both ways. You can't say we love Jesus and he was a good moral teacher and not believe he was God. Because he taught certain truths. And that truth is that he is the way, the truth, and the life. That the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus. That he is the only one that is capable of forgiving sins. Now, if he wasn't truthful in those statements, if he wasn't God, then those statements are actually evil. To say that he's the only one capable of forgiving sins, but that's a lie, that's actually evil. To say that he's the only way to heaven, but if it's a lie, that's actually evil. So Jesus was either lying about who he said he was, which is an evil thing to do, therefore he can't be a, a good moral teacher, or he was a lunatic. And why on earth would you want to follow a lunatic? Or the, the third option, before we get to the Lord, is that he was, he was this legend that developed. And that's where a lot of secular scholars go today, is that this legend of Jesus kind of developed, like the legend of Paul Bunyan. What Peter's getting at here is that they were there with him. They were eyewitnesses. This, there's no way that this could have been a legend that developed. 
A legend, a liar, and a lunatic does not explain what happens from his death till Pentecost and after. Because there's no way the church should have grown. You've got a group of scared, running apostles and disciples. Guys that were afraid of the Romans. Guys that were afraid of the Jews. And their leader was dead. If this was a legend, it ends there. The only way to describe what happens in history, how the church grows and flourishes, is that Jesus is Lord. And he proved it by the resurrection. It all hinges on the resurrection. There's no way the disciples would have done what they did had he not rose from the dead. So we did not follow cleverly devised myths. When we made known to you, so Peter and the other apostles made known to these churches, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what he's getting at here and what the false teachers were trying to claim is that Jesus is not going to come again. Jesus will not judge the wicked. And what he's saying is, no, this isn't just a cleverly devised thing that we just made up out of thin air. This is what Jesus taught us, that he will come again, that there will be a second coming of Jesus. And when he comes again, he will judge the wicked and he will be a righteous judge. He goes on, but, we didn't, we didn't make this, we didn't, we didn't make this thing up, but, now he's going to describe where it comes from, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So he emphasizes that he was an eyewitness, and what he's going to describe is the transfiguration. When he went up to the mountain with Jesus, and Jesus was transfigured, and he describes it as majesty. Majesty is a quality that produces awe and reverence. So he was a witness of Jesus, and some, during the transfiguration, we don't know exactly what, what happened to Jesus, but we do know that it produced awe and reverence in Peter. And he witnesses it with his very eyes. He witnesses it. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. So not only was he an eyewitness, but he was an ear witness. Meaning he saw with his very eyes the transfiguration of Jesus, and then he also heard the voice. The two matched together. So he, saw, he was an eyewitness, he was an ear witness, he heard and he saw the transfiguration, and he heard the voice come down, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So he's saying, hey, look, this is real. I'm an eyewitness to this reality. This is the truth. But then he goes another step. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. So what he's saying here, he's saying, look, I witnessed this thing. It's not just made up, but I witnessed it. And not only that, but we have something even greater than his witness. We have the prophetic word. The, the term prophetic word here is a reference to Scripture. So we have Scripture to back this all up, is what he's saying here. To which you will do well to pay attention. 
So we've, we've got this prophetic word more fully confirmed. The term more fully confirmed here is a legal term, and it means to be guaranteed valid. So if someone wanted to produce some type of evidence into a court scene, they would have to validate this evidence. So they would weigh the evidence to see if this was valid evidence or not. And if it was valid evidence, they would guarantee it as valid evidence. That's what he's saying here is this prophetic word, this scripture is guaranteed valid evidence of Jesus and his second coming. And what he's talking about specifically here is the Old Testament. There are a lot of people that like to write off the Old Testament. There's a mathematician named Peter Stoner. He was a a mathematician out of California. He was a professor out in California, and he dealt with probabilities. So he wanted to look at what is the probability of Jesus fulfilling Old Testament prophecy about him. Jesus fulfilled over 70 Old Testament prophecies, most of those prophecies were things Jesus couldn't control. For example, where he was born. I have yet to meet a baby control where they were born. Who he was born to. The condition of the mother that he was born to. The the fact that they would go to Egypt and return. Where he would grow up. These are things that Jesus could not control. And yet, he fulfilled them. Over 70 different prophecies he fulfilled. So Peter Stoner wanted to find out what would it take for Jesus to fulfill seven. He's fulfilled over 70. What would it take for him to fulfill just seven of these prophecies? And what he did was he found out that uh, through, through his education uh, as a mathematician and pro- specializing in pro- probabilities, that it would take 10 to the 17th power for Jesus to to fulfill just seven. That is 10 with 17 zeros behind them. This is an astronomically large number. He went on to try to help us understand this number. Because this number is so big, we can't even really... comprehend it. We don't have the oidos, the knowledge, to comprehend this, right? So, so what he did is he said, it would be like taking silver dollars and lining the state of Texas with silver dollars. From north to south, east to west, the entire state of Texas in silver dollars, two feet deep. One has an X on it. And you get in a helicopter and you're blindfolded, and the helicopter driver takes you, pilot takes you and drops you off somewhere in Texas. And with your blindfold on, you reach into the silver dollars that are two feet deep and you pull out the one with an X on it. That's how unlikely it was for Jesus to fulfill even seven of the prophecies, let alone over 70. That is evidence that I think is guaranteed valid. In fact, there's so much evidence pointing towards the validity of the prophecy that only God could have made this happen. A lot of secular 
historians think that there are parts of the Bible that had to have been written afterwards. There are so many prophets that were so accurate in their foretelling of what would happen that secular historians say there's no way that happened beforehand. It had to happen after because it's just too accurate. And to that I would say you neither know Scripture nor the power of God. It is evidence that is guaranteed valid. It's just too astronomical to be invalid. So that's what he's saying is, look, I watched this. I saw this thing happen before my very eyes. But not only that, we have something even more powerful than his eyewitness, than his ear witness. And that's scripture itself. To which you would be, or to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in the darkness until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. And what he's saying here is that uh, the world is dark. That all these other truth claims aren't the actual truth. That they're all lies. And we live in a dark world that's trying to cover up the truth, but the Bible shines like a lamp in that darkness. And not only is the world dark, but our hearts tend to be darkened. And we need Scripture to lighten the darkness of our hearts because when it comes down to it, if it's all about my opinion, it's going to be really all about my desires. And I can twist and turn anything to make it sound like it's the truth if it's all about, if it's all about my desire. So we need Scripture to penetrate our hearts so that we are no longer wrestling in the dark, but that we can see our own hearts clearly. Scripture lights our hearts. Scripture convicts. Scripture shows us what truth really is. That's what he's getting at here. And then verse 20, knowing this first of all, and this term first of all means of most importance or of first importance. So knowing that this is the most important thing, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And what he's getting at here is, what he's saying is that Scripture just wasn't invented by men, but that God inspired it, that God moved men along to write it. The claim has always been, people just wrote it. It's not inspired. People just wrote things down and they made us start jumping through religious hoops. That's been the claim. Even in Peter's day, and we still hear this claim today. And what he's saying is, you have to know that this is of first importance. This is the most important thing. That scripture that was written down was carried along by the Spirit. The term carried along here means blown across the sea by the wind. So you could imagine a boat being blown across the sea by the wind. That's how Scripture was being written. The Holy Spirit was moving men to write the Scripture. That the Holy Spirit was moving men in such a way that they would write down what God would have them to say. And He did it in such a way that even their own personalities would come out in it, but yet they would still write what He would have them to say. How else can you explain the prophecies that came true about Christ? How else could you explain Old Testament prophecies that predicted kings that would, happen, that would exist in the future? 
There's only one way to explain it, and that is God moved man to do it. And all this adds up to us trusting and submitting to Scripture. That's the point he's trying to get at here. So he's going to remind us of these truths. He's going to constantly remind us of these truths. And we need to gather together. We need each other to remind each other of these truths. If we're not gathering together on a regular basis, we will forget. That's the tendency of man. We will let our hearts be darkened, and we will forget that God has lavished His grace upon us, that He has called us to righteousness, that He has made us perfectly righteous in His eyes, and that we can grow in that grace. We will forget it. So we need to gather together on a consistent basis to remind each other, and we need to look towards Scripture as our basis, because it is of first importance. Now let's pretend. Let's pretend that I am a fantastic poem, poet. I am not. I said let's pretend. I'm a horrible poet. Uh, if I were to write poetry, it would be horrible. Roses are red, violets are blue. That is like five levels above where I could write. But let's pretend. Let's pretend I am a wonderful poet, and I want to write a love poem for my wife. So I write this poetry, this poem, and it's a beautiful poem. I might say something about how the, the ocean, my love for her is like the ocean because it's so big, it's vast, and it's deep. We can get lost in it forever. And I wrote this poem, and it, it, this poem is so good that it could actually change the way you think about love. It would actually change your heart. That's how good this poem is. And so I write this poem, and I hand it to my wife. And I'm just smiling. I'm beaming, waiting for her response because it's so amazing. And she reads it, and she looks at me, and she crumbles it up and throws it away. And she says, Aaron, you can't buy a boat. What do you mean I can't buy it? That, that poem had nothing to do with a boat. It had everything to do with my love for you. She says, yeah, Aaron, you can't buy a boat. I read the poem, and what it meant to me was that you wanted a boat because you talked about the ocean, and you can't buy a boat. What's the problem here? The problem is that she isn't searching for the meaning of the poem. What she's doing is she's bringing her own interpretation to the poem. And she's asking the question, not what does this poem mean, but what does this poem mean to me? And I hear this question all the time when it comes to Bible studies. What does this piece of scripture mean to you? And the problem with that question is we've got this life changing book here. The very words of God here for us that will actually change our hearts, that will change the way we think about things, but beyond even how we think about things, it changes our very hearts. It changes what we desire. It changes our attitude. And what do we do when we handle it? We say, well, what does it mean to you? 
Meaning, how do you interpret that? Well, how do you twist Scripture to make yourself feel better? Instead of saying, what did God mean when He wrote that? We have Scripture that is so amazing, and yet we oftentimes handle it poorly because we want to twist it to fit into our own desires instead of saying Scripture was breathed and moved along by God. And when I submit to it, He changes me. He is the source of all truth. He is the Creator. We are the creation. And in His creation, He set up truth. He set up principles that were real. And he has revealed his truth through his scripture. So where do you turn for truth? When you need to know what is real, when you need your heart changed, where do you turn? Dear Lord, we thank you for your scripture. We thank you that, that not only did you breathe it out and you moved men along to write it, but you wrote it with such accuracy that it blows mathematicians' minds. That, that there's numbers there that we can't even wrap our heads around. You have made it trustworthy and authoritative. And yet, too often we mishandle it. Too often we don't do it justice. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us not come to your word with questions like, what does it mean to me? But come to your word with the question, what did you mean? And how can I submit my life to it? In your name we pray. Amen.